0: Welcome to another edition of Chefs and Guests on the Spoon Mom podcast feed. My name is Ray. I'm your host. Today is episode number eight overall. This episode is with Chef Brett Fife of Ghostwriter Public House. You may recognize the name. He was basically the chef at Lindy's downtown for like a decade. It was like nine years going on, 10 years uh, that he was there. And he's worked at a bunch of different places around town. He was really early with like Cameron Mitchell restaurants, really early with Hyde Park before they came, you know, corporate Brio Bravo before they had kind of their got sold and then got resold recently and all that stuff. So he was really early with all these kind of big corporate restaurant places, but he also worked at some mom and pop stuff. And, and we get into all that. But Ghost Rider Public House, it's a restaurant, you know, we did a, a restaurant review podcast last week because of. Columbus Restaurant Week that we were doing. And so if you haven't checked that out, make sure to listen to that. But it's a really, really, really well done. It's a beautiful restaurant. It's out in Johnstown, Ohio, which is about like 35 minutes from downtown Columbus or so. It's not too far. It's definitely worth the drive. The owners, the Blanket Myers, they own Crow Works Furniture, which is this industrial furniture company. They make all the stuff there uh, out in Kilbuck, Ohio. They basically made this a showcase For all their furniture, but it's an active showcase. So it's extremely, extremely well done. Just all the decor, all the little touches, really cool place to just grab something to eat. Like I said, on the the Restaurant Review podcast, the fish was phenomenal. Filet of salmon, perfectly cooked. The burger is their most popular item. We get into that on the podcast too as well, but it was really cool. It's about a two-hour podcast with chef Brett Fife. He's a really awesome guy. He's really just kind of down to earth. You know, he's been around the food scene forever. He knows all the players. Everybody's kind of come up through the food scene. He's kind of a local guy. I mean, he's been in Columbus for since college, um, uh, but definitely a Midwest guy through and through. Super talented too, as well. I mean, just if you ever ate at Lindy's since basically two thousand and nine, two thousand ten, you've had his food. And then if you've been a ghostwriter, he's definitely able to to do his own thing now and and has creative control over the entire menu, and we cover all this stuff, but it reminds me a lot of what Rock Mill Tavern was when Jay Clevin was there, with just the way they, just the fish is such a standout from, that's the only other place that I can even compare the fish to, the way they do it with the, with the really nice char on the skin and everything like that. When Jay was at Rock Mill, that was the only other place that was doing fish that well, so it was really cool to like be able to experience that. And then, you know, they have a bunch of other stuff on the menu, tacos and the tacos are really good too. Different little appetizers, you know, they locally source stuff. So it's a really awesome restaurant. Obviously you wish it was closer to downtown, but it's not. And that's okay because it's not too far away. If you drive to Easton at all, it's just another 10 to 15 minutes down the road. So instead of eating at some corporate place, like go and eat there. They're open, really, really good food. Can't speak highly enough. You know, we had a phenomenal first experience there. I learned about it from a coworker, took us a little while to, to get over there just because it was, we were living downtown and want to get out there. And then like coronavirus happened shortly after. And I was like, damn, and hopefully they're still around so we can get to try it. And then once they were able to kind of reopen for, for dining, we were able to make it out there. So it's an awesome place. I'll shut up. And uh, here's the interview with chef Brett Fife of Ghostwriter Public House. Cool. So yeah, thanks for coming on, doing the podcast. Um, What we've been doing is kind of going through everybody's culinary career up to this point. And then we have some other questions and stuff and kind of set the tone for people to get to know different chefs in the industry, especially around Columbus too, as well. There's not a whole lot of background on anybody, really. I mean, we have a few different kind of media organizations, but uh, they don't do anything really in depth, uh, at least in my opinion. So just kind of want to start with like, you know, I was doing some research after visiting Ghostwriter. I first learned about Ghostwriter from a coworker of mine right after kind of you guys opened in I think like the fall of two thousand nineteen. Yeah. And the pandemic happened. And then once you guys kind of reopened, we were able to kind of get out there uh, for the first time and had a great experience. But you know, we'll get up to Ghostwriter and everything, but how did you get started in, in cooking? Was it something that you just kinda of grew up around or a little bit of that? Um...
1: Grew up in a small farm town, uh, rural Indiana, kind of northeast of Indianapolis a little bit, surrounded by farm country. Two thousand people, you know, small town. Uh, Parents always had a garden in the backyard, you know, growing corn, peas, tomatoes, stuff like that. So that was always part of my upbringing. My mom was a very country style cook, you know, meat, potatoes, um, whatever. But we always had lots of fresh produce and stuff and. The funny thing was, is I was a super picky eater as a kid. Um, I, I probably ate like five vegetables and whatever, uh, well done protein there was. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I didn't eat salad. I didn't eat the you know, like only condiment I would eat would ketchup, you know, and so none of that stuff changed until I became a chef, uh, in my twenties. But, uh, yeah, so kind of grew up that lifestyle, uh, Always, I think, had a proclivity I was interested in. And I wouldn't say I was always in the kitchen, but I just kind of always knew what my mom was doing. We were always around. We're very uh, close-knit family. Um, I'm the oldest of three boys. So we were always just around the neighborhood, involved, had friends over in sports all year long and stuff. So, um, But having dinner around the table was always extremely important. So unless we had a game or something that was keeping us from having dinner together, we always had dinner together every night. Um, and my mom also a lot of, I'd say three out of five days a week would do a hot breakfast or something before we to school. So, um, so yeah, just being around the table and being around food was just kind of a natural part of our life and, uh, got into high school and was a straight A and D student, but also a jock. So juniors, uh, senior year looking for an easy class to, you know, throw on the, on the case, on the, the, the study load took like home ec and, uh, um, some beginning food type classes or whatever. And it'd be, they'd break you up in a little satellite kitchen. And it'd be me, uh, my younger brother, he was two years younger than me and like two of our guy friends. And that would be like our little pod. And, uh, we won the cake decorating contest out of the whole class. We did a, uh, uh, March madness themed cake. So you had like, it was a round cake, you know, flat, but a double decker layer. The sides we cross hatched to look like the net of a basketball hoop. The top looked like the rim and it said like March Madness on it or whatever. So, you know, we beat all the girls in the class or whatever. Um, so yeah, I kind of always, you know, was into it that way. And then in college I remember messing around in the summer, you know, grilling ribs or stuff, just kind of like throwing things together. And then uh when I was in school, I got a part time job working in the student union, doing a the uh, little satellite pizza hut, you know, personal pan pizza breadstick kind of kiosk. And uh we had a flat top and we're making hot sandwiches, you know, subs, bagel sandwiches and stuff like that. So so I did that and uh, I was studying sociology. I have a bachelor's in sociology. But the senior year, my senior year, in the middle of it, my senior year, um, I was seeing a doctor, a specialist back at home. I have a hearing impairment. I'm fine conversationally, but I have a lot of hearing loss and have had eight uh, major ear surgeries from the time I was six till the time I was 20, um, just to kind of get things pseudo normal. Was that just like genetic, or was that like a? Yeah, yeah. They they realized when I was five, I was just having recurring um, ear infections all the time, and just major problems, ruptured eardrum, stuff like that. They were going to go ahead and put it in uh, tubes, and they found out it was something uh, a little a little more involved than that. Uh, so, what they it's called cholesteatoma, and I had it in two years. And what it is, it's a, a benign mass. So it's not going to kill you per se, but that mass does. Uh, Dissolvers eat up bone material, so basically it was destroying a lot of my middle ear bones. So the the hammer, the incus, and the stapes, you know, whatever those three middle ear bones are, it was messing with all that, and so I was suffering hearing loss. So, basically, they had to go in and kind of carve a lot of that damage and stuff out, and try to restructure what they could. Um, I wear a hearing aid in my right ear normally, just for to maintain conversation. Like I could hear you just fine if we're face to face, but if we're in a restaurant or it's loud um and uh, you're around that heavy equipment or a hood and stuff like that it's it's difficult for me to hear so or if you're in another room I could hear you talking but I can't really make out the words you know it's a it's like I hear volume
0: those things have come a long way too like the the hearing aids yeah. like they used to be i mean i'm only like you know 32 going on 33 but I remember as a kid seeing people with like you know, when, when people got older, senior citizens and stuff, they would have that big, you know, the big tan thing and
1: you could but now yeah. like I think they have like really yeah.
0: like small ones and stuff like that. I think Yeah, they have
1: really small ones that go in your ear. My right ear canal though is kind of large due to the excess surgeries I've had and so I can't do it in ear one. So I have one that goes behind, but it is still pretty petite. Yeah. Um, but uh it also nowadays, thinking of the technology, they're so advanced that it, it operates as a Bluetooth. So I can like take phone calls on my hearing aid. I can listen to podcasts on my hearing aid. That's what I do at work while I'm, I'm prepping. You just have a, you have a permanent AirPod, basically. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but that was, you know, um, so I'm seeing my specialist. They're asking me what I want to do when I graduate. It's my senior year in college. And I said, uh, well, I'm probably going to go into law enforcement because I've, I've got a sociology degree and I had for the previous three summers. Uh, had connected with uh, a program where I grew up and it was putting uh, underprivileged youth in the community, like it, into jobs. And just so happened, I got around jobs that had to do with law enforcement. So it was doing like a civilian patrol where we worked with the city police um, in Anderson, Indiana, so the APD. And um, you know, we would do a civilian patrol where they gave us mountain bikes and a walkie talkie. And we basically would patrol city parks and just like if we saw any squirrelly or whatever you could call it, into a dispatch or something. Then they'd have you know an officer come out and check it out or whatever. Uh did a lot of ride alongs. I got to work with county sheriffs another summer. So I really had a lot of connections and, and was very inclined to go in law enforcement.
0: And did you have any family that was like in law enforcement that kinda like just
1: kinda ran on that No, none at all. Uh grandfathers that were like in the military and stuff, but nothing, you know, my father, nothing really close or anything. I don't know. I, maybe it just kinda fit of my personality at the time and what I was interested in doing. You know, I find Soldiers, you know, military people, police officers, firemen—those are all very noble, you know, very valuable positions, very uh, sacrificial, you know, very subservient to, to, to the general population. So I, you know, I, I see a lot of importance in that. And a lot of there's a lot of respect for those guys. Um, so yeah, so I was just kind of leaning that way, and they said, "Well, with your hearing loss, she'll never be able to pass a physical exam. Like you Can't exactly be a police officer in the field, and you can't hear, you know, someone ten feet behind you." You know, walking through the grass or something, which I, I wouldn't hear at my hearing level. Um, so uh, yeah, I was like, well, "What am I gonna do?" You know. Um, and I was dating my wife, my, now my wife, my girlfriend at the time in college. Uh, I'm from Indiana. She's from here in Columbus, and she grew up in Worthington. Um, and we were going to school in Southern Indiana, a little uh, a little arts college called Hanover College. Very similar to like Otterbein or Worcester, you know, something like that.
0: Yeah, that's right on like the border of uh, the two states, too, kind of like on the river.
1: Yep. Yeah, it's right. It's on a beautiful bluff overlooking the river. Be- beautiful campus, Georgian architecture. Really nice. How'd you wind up there? Uh, I ended up there because So it was the third school I visited. Uh, being a jock in high school, I wanted to continue to play sports. I wasn't ready to let go of that coming out of high school.
0: What sports did you play? I'm, I'm assuming you played football.
1: Yeah, football. Football track. Yeah. I'm like, you seem like a sizable guy. So I'm like, I'm 5'10, like 240. Yeah. So I was probably like, I was probably like 210 in high school and going into college. Okay. Uh, but yeah, I played like linebacker, fullback, whatever, a little bit of line. Um, yeah. And I just wasn't really ready to give it up. And I knew the way that I could continue that would be to go to a D3 school, to, to a small college. Um, and then I, and I wanted to go into, and still to this day, I, if I wasn't a cook, I would love to do this, but I wanted to go into teaching so I could coach because I had some amazing high school teachers that I loved uh, that were awesome history teachers. And, and I don't know if I've ever taught history, but realistically, I wanted, to, I wanted to get into teaching probably so I could coach, so I could be around football. And uh, went to school freshman year. It took like a education seminar class or whatever. And it's just like, yeah, I don't know if this is really what I thought it was going to be, you know? So then I kind of switched my major up and got into sociology. I don't know why. Maybe I thought it was interesting. Uh, So that put me on the path because we didn't really have a a criminal justice major. So sociology was just more of a blanket um, degree. There's criminology classes and stuff like that, but it was a little more all-encompassing. So, right. Yeah. So I graduate with a uh, a bachelor's degree, but I'm getting ready to graduate. And I'm like, what am I going to do? And I'd been dating my girlfriend at the time and visited Columbus numerous times because we were always back and forth on the weekends. She would come home to my family's house in Indiana, or I would uh, come spend time with her family in Ohio and uh, found out that Columbus uh, had a Columbus State Community College and uh, had a culinary program there. And at the time, that was the only one in town. There was no. Uh, the one out at East and uh, it actually closed, I think, this past year, um, Bradford Institute uh, there was none of that, you know. So, um, and her, my wife's grandparents uh, were big fans of Cameron Mitchell, who was just getting his start really in Columbus. I think he had Cameron's and uh, maybe one of the first Cap Cities or something. So, this is like, this is 1998 for a point of reference. Um, so, I was like, well, I guess I'll just move to Columbus. I'll enter culinary school, I'll get a job in a kitchen and start working. And because like I said, I'd already done uh, the part-time gig in college. I kind of had the stuff that I like to do, and seemed to be decent at it in high school, or seemed to take to it pretty well. So, yeah, it went from you know wanting to be in law enforcement to uh, culinary, and it went from you know sports and football, which led me to a small school rather than a bigger school or some other kind of tech school or something. And uh, yeah, I ended up in Columbus in 1998, so been here ever since.
0: With uh, culinary school. Looking back on it, did you find it valuable? Is it something that you would recommend to anybody in your kitchen now if they were really serious about the profession going to culinary school? Or do you think like hands-on experience is more valuable?
1: Yeah, I think... And I hear a lot of this from everybody. There's really two schools of thought. And I think there's a lot of two people that are kind of in the middle though because I see the value in it as far as uh, the basics, the foundations, you know, classical French cooking, um, pairing of flavors, things like that. Um, a lot of that stuff is going to be hard to pick up in a lot of kitchens, unless you're working in a really good restaurant, a scratch restaurant, a chef who maybe has been trained in those ways. Um, so I find the value in all of that stuff. Uh, also caveat that you really get out of culinary what you put into it. You know if, if you really want to learn, if you're really passionate about the industry, if you work in a you apprentice under a good chef in a good restaurant, it's going to make that experience all the more valuable. Having said that, culinary schools are always, or at least in more so, you know, years and years past, where, you know, you're passing kids that are in catering companies or not even like restaurants, you know, things like that. People that can't even, you know, cut a side of fish, but they've got a culinary degree or whatever. So the industry's rife. We know some of that, and then it's got your people that are pretty well skilled and have been trained classically, and then you've also got your people that have definitely, you know, gone to school with hard knocks and have been fortunate to. Um, a, be passionate about it, and B, be taught and brought brought up by somebody who was passionate about it. And, and they put in the time and the effort, whether it was on the job or whether it's on the internet, whether it's a cookbook collection or whatever it is, they, they've learned with, without the culinary school aspect. But I, I do find value in it. I think there's a definite for structure because nowadays, you, and even in the past 10 years, you've got the proliferation of all the molecular gastronomy stuff, which isn't such of a big deal anymore. But you know, at the height of all that, you have all these... Kids and people running around, you know, wanting to have their own restaurant, pop ups, doing all these weird techniques and trying to put stuff together. But you know, they can't make a hollandaise, or they can't—they don't understand the right ratios of a vinaigrette. They don't know how to make a really great stock. Um, And and, you know, maybe at some point, for some people's cooking, some of those things aren't relevant. But I guess it there's just there's no foundation there, and you're just kind of like slapdash and stuff together. You don't really understand why it works or how it works. And or in some aspect, you know, they might just be replicating somebody else's stuff. So with
0: I mean, you went to like you mentioned, I think, Columbus State's culinary program. Was there any sort of differences that, you know, now between like Columbus State and what the CIA would do? Or were you able to extern anywhere while you were doing going through the culinary program at Columbus State?
1: Yeah, the culinary program there was based at the time. And it's I think it's still mostly this way. Um I had some other apprentices, so I went through the program, and I was an apprentice under an ACF certified chef. Um, I actually started my career with Cameron Mitchell Restaurants, and obviously Cameron was a, always involved in that program then and now is you know almost the, the dawn of, the, of that program. I mean, they've got a, an entire building. Yeah, they just built their yeah. Yeah. They're building it or just finished it. I don't remember which one it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's finished. Um, so you know, it's got his name on it. Um, so he's given a lot of money to school and there's been countless, uh, cooks that have come through that program and have gone into his, his company and are still there. Um, or have also, you know, moved on and done their own things. But, um, I think that it's, it's very similar where in the aspect of it's a school one day a week, and then it's more on the job training. So there, I stress the importance of where you work as far as what you will learn and what you will absorb and how you'll grow as a cook. Um, so I was lucky, and I made sure that I worked for people who knew what they were doing, who had a lot to offer, who could teach me. Whether I was learning volume and repetition in a, a CMR type restaurant, or whether I was working in a smaller mom and pop or was 100 scratch, and it was me and the chef owner and one other guy, you know. So. Um, having those kind of experiences, that's, that was really, that's like your apprenticeship. So there really is no externship per se. Um, whereas, yeah, if you're going to CAA or uh, JW or something like that, you're, you're going to school five days a week, like any other normal college kid. Um, and then you either work at some of the restaurants on campus that they have and, or um, if you want to carry a job. Um, and if you don't, you're just going to school full time. And then towards the end of your school, you are out yeah, looking for it an externship somewhere where you go 6 weeks, 8 weeks, 12 weeks, whatever whatever the school mandates. And that's that's a way to get yourself out there and um, try to see some other restaurants, some other parts of the country, some of the things you might be interested in, chefs you might really be interested in, uh, style-wise, food-wise, career-wise. Um, so I would say that's kind of the difference between the two programs really.
0: So then after you do culinary school, like you said, you started Cameron Mitchell, I think you went to Cap City and then you know, you're kind of working around that town like hyde park uh oscars uh brio in uh, easton yeah was there any of those that you look back on was like more influential or did you pick up something from each kitchen that you were able to kind of roll forward and build like your skill set upon
1: yeah when i look back at it i think that uh i was very fortunate it the way it kind of all unfolded because i kind of learned a new level you know kind of unlocked something there at each each place um you know, I came into Cameron's, the Cap city, at Grandview, a very high volume restaurant, even to this day, um, maybe even more so to this day than it was then. But um, a young green cook, never really been in a restaurant before. I had only worked at that student union, you know, working a flat top, just making four or five sandwiches at a time or whatever. And somehow I went in and interviewed and you know, told them I was going to the culinary program and everything. And they decided to put me on the AM grill station. Um, and I just got my rear handed to me, uh, right out the gate, man, it's, it's brutal. And, uh, after two weeks, uh, one of the sues pulled me aside and the, and the walk in and said, Hey man, if you don't get your shit together, you're not gonna, you might not be here much longer. Uh, and I just was, you know, blindsided, flabbergasted. I didn't know what to think. I was just trying to survive, but whatever it was, I did. Um, you know, I hung on there within the year that I was there. I was there maybe a little over a year, but by the end of the year, I had, Worked multiple stations on the AM line, multiple stations on the PM line. Uh, was learning a touch of the chef prep, which was as far as like you know, butchering fish or making the meatloaf or whatever. Uh, did a little bit of bake shop, even as far as uh, learning how to do their yeast rolls and things they did. So I was getting a little bit of everything. And I was flexible. And I you know could work whatever shift they wanted me to. I was living here in Columbus. My uh, wife was finishing up one more year of school in Hanover. So I had moved to Columbus on my own. Was living in an apartment with two other girls that were friends of hers um, from high school or whatever. So I was just working my butt off and trying to learn, and so I I made it. Uh, I stayed on there and worked my way through the kitchen, Um, and then from there I got an opportunity to go to like a smaller independent place. Um, So I'd say that first place really taught me, you know, uh, the whole fight or flight thing and and volume, you know, sticking it out and and trying to trying to figure it out rather than folding. then I got an opportunity to go to a, a smaller place, and it was kind of one of those. Hey, there's going to be that you're kind of like the kitchen manager. You get a lot of responsibility, but no title. And the uh, the money was definitely better than a little better than where I was. And the reason I left C.M.R. was because I had uh, two sous chefs that were both in the culinary. Well, I'm sorry, one sous, one of my sous chefs was in the culinary program at the time. And he was just in I think his third year. He had already been made a, a chef. Uh, the other guy was a supervisor and he was in his second year. So it the culinary program at the state's three-year program. And so I was in my first year. And so I sat down one day with the corporate chef at the time, just said, Hey, I, I want you to know, this is something I, I really want to do with my life. You know, I, I moved here. I'm in culinary. I'm working here. Um, this is the track I want to be on, you know, and I know that, you know, Alex is a sous chef and Caesars, uh, you know, he's a supervisor and he's probably going to be the next in line for a sous or something. And I know the company's grown. They were starting to build some stuff. There was talk about this is when they were, uh, building cameras, uh, the fish markets. So I was there when they were building the fish market, the first fish market there on uh, Montangy river, right, right next to the cap city. And, uh, was so just you know trying to put my feelings out there and let people know what I thought and what I felt what I was interested in. it kind of gave me the well you know if I had a position tomorrow I'd have to say you're not ready and I was like well yeah I'm not asking you to make me a sous chef tomorrow I just want to know that I, you're thinking about me and I'm uh, you know I'm I want to be on that track and it decided I didn't really get a great vibe from it um, so when the other opportunity kind of presented itself from a, another friend slash coworker, so I went and checked it out and Ended up working over in the short north, uh, two little places that aren't there anymore, um, called Dagwood's Diner and Fresno. Fresno is, I think, where like Union or um, or some other place, but it's kind of like right in that area where i um, trying to think what else. used to, There used to be Haiku used to be next to it. Haiku is like an old sushi place. That's no longer either. We're kind of right at the very front of the short north um, on the uh, west side of the street. Dagwoods was a little further down, a little diner you know, concept. Small places. The Fresno was bigger. Dagwoods was a little smaller, uh, a bar, some booths, some tables, stuff. But big, uh, short north places, places that are super busy on gallery hop and stuff like that. So um, the Fresno had a wood-fired oven, so that was kind of my first exposure to that and something to this day that I'm fascinated with. Um, and where I am now at Ghost Rider, you know, we, we cook over a live fire. So it's another thing to love about that place. Uh, but yeah, so then I kind of moved there, kind um, of bouncing around. Um, I ended up at another small mom and pop place with a wood fired oven. It was out in Powell. It's it's no longer there either. It was in the strip center, um, but that was with a chef owner um, and his two partners owned a pasta company, and the pasta company is still around in Columbus. It's called Pasta de Tony's. I think they sell a lot of their stuff at some of the North Market stalls, and I think they actually have their own thing at the new Dublin uh, North Market. Uh, But it was uh, an Indian gentleman, a Greek gentleman, and then uh, the chef owner, their third partner, the chef. So, him and I worked really close together. Um, It was me and him and a part time guy, really. So, everything was from scratch, everything was hands on, and everything was really creative and free. You know, it was really just loosely based around pizza and pasta and a few entrees, but we could, uh, cuisine wise, it was influenced from all over. So, it was really a place where I got to try and and do a lot of stuff on my own, kind of figure out flavor pairings and profiles and really learn a lot. Um, we are doing our own and pizza dough from scratch every day, all our desserts, all our stocks, everything. So it's everything that I was still learning in culinary school, but, but what I wouldn't have got at Cap City. You know, Cap City was about volume, was about turning numbers, doing, doing great food, but at a really great pace, um, feeding the masses. Um, and where I was, it was a little more individualized. It was a little more guest-centered and getting to know the regulars, people that lived in the area, Powell and stuff. And it was much more, like I said, hands on. And the chef there's name is uh, Bob Keen. Bob uh, would just, you know, he kind of just let me run with it. And he, you know, kind of let me just create a lot and do a lot of stuff. And we did a lot of different breads, a lot of desserts. We always had specials and stuff. So he was definitely driving the bus on a lot of that, but he also left a lot of it to me just to really explore and let me grow as a cook. So that, I think that was kind of like the second level of, you know, me unlocking, you know, kind of. Who I might end up as a as a chef. So I was always as a kid and in high school and even in college, always very artistic, always into art. If I'd have taken an art uh, history course or two, I would have graduated with a minor in art because I took enough of it in college. Um, always into drawing, uh, comic book art, stuff like that. So it's always very creative and artistic, which translates into the, into food, you know, and trying to be artistic on the plate and pleasing with the eye.
0: Do you still do any of that drawing or painting or anything uh,
1: spare time or? Once in a blue moon, I'll sit down with my kids if they're doing it because my oldest... So I have four kids, three girls and a boy. My girls are 17, 15 and almost 13. And my son is almost seven. The oldest girl and the youngest girl both enjoy uh, drawing art in general. Uh, The younger girl is very crafty all around. She'll paint. She'll make stuff. She'll draw. She'll create things. So, everyone's on a blue moon. If they're sitting around doing that, or we've got a weird, odd family day and nobody has any responsibilities, we might kind of all hang out together and do something like that. Uh, but yeah, unfortunately, I, I really don't much anymore. Uh, starting to kind of get back into comic books in general, just because my son, um, you know, for me, it's my second childhood now with, you know, Star Wars and Marvel and, you know, and everything else. So, uh, he's into all that stuff. So, legos um uh so yeah not much art anymore these days but yeah definitely a passion for you know just enjoying art, appreciating art and whether that's a paper a canvas or a plate you know it, it kind of translates for me
0: have any of your kids um shown any interest in following in in your footsteps or getting into culinary or anything or is that something that you uh my oldest okay I didn't, know, I didn't know if like that's something that you would like... Because I mean, everybody's different. But sometimes it's, you know, people don't want like their kids to follow in their footsteps because they know all the pitfalls of whatever industry that they're in. So they usually try and steer them somewhere else. But sometimes there's nothing you can do. And it's almost like the more that you steer somebody away from that thing, the more they want to be in that thing that you're steering them away from.
1: Yeah. She, my oldest, she definitely has a proclivity for baking. She enjoys making cookies and the occasional whatever other dessert. Um, she has a part-time job. So she's 17. And when she turned 15, she got a job because she wanted money. Um, So uh, more power to her, you know, for having the drive for that, because she knew if she had money, she could, But you know, we're comfortable, you know, we have everything we need. And, uh, but you know, if she wanted X pair of shoes or a certain type of whatever, like she knew she needed to do that, but she's also been really, really awesome about saving money, putting away money for a car and insurance and stuff like that. So, but she works at Dairy Queen. Um, she usually works 2-3 shifts a week started off on drive through then got moved over to the chill station which is where they make all the ice cream treats and stuff and then uh, has been doing a little bit of grill lately as well so I don't think she wants to go into it or anything but I think it's comfortable for her because she's always grown up around restaurants she's always known me to be in restaurants um, so rather than her I think initially we had talked about she was maybe going to try to get a serving job in like a retirement community or something like that and somehow it ended up Going to Dairy Queen and talking to them and getting a job in there. So, uh, yeah, I don't know if she just finds it comfortable or pleasing or whatever. But um, yeah, she wants to go in sports management. Um, she's she's a big sports head, loves football, loves soccer. Um, so I don't foresee her going into that. The other two, I mean, they can barely like scramble an egg or anything. So I don't think that uh, that's one thing, too. I've never really taught them a lot. I mean, being a chef, like you're just not home a lot, you know? So, yeah. And my wife cooks, but she doesn't enjoy it. And, and her mom didn't really ever teach her, so she's not really teaching ours either. <laughs> so before we finally turn them loose into the world, I gotta I gotta help them out a little bit, <laughs> figure some things out, show them how to make some spaghetti. And yeah, yeah, I mean they're always around. They always you know see. They always know what I'm doing or what I'm doing if I'm cooking at home. I got a uh, wood fired oven, a little mini uh, Gozney rock box. So it's like a little travel size, hook it up to a propane tank, uh maybe stone oven. Got that for Christmas. So we've been doing a lot of that lately. Try and do that on, I'm off on Mondays, Tuesdays. So usually Tuesday nights, we've been doing that whenever possible. Um They they love getting around and watching me do that and just seeing what we're doing and trying different kinds of pizzas because I'll make like eight different pizzas or whatever and just throw all kinds of different toppings on them. So, but yeah, um yeah, none of that. I don't think any of them will follow into it. And I told them, I said, look, I, I don't really want you to ever do this unless you're really, really passionate about it because it comes at a price. You know, it's definitely a sacrifice on on life. It's a sacrifice on time, family, being with others, you know, being up late when people are sleeping, sleeping when people are up, you know, your weekends are, you know, odd days or they're Mondays, Tuesdays. Everybody else is doing family things on the weekend. So it's definitely not an easy life. So, um, and I'm not crying about it. Um, I mean I love what I do, but like I said, it comes at a cost. So um, and you know, you're always trying to find that balance and it's it's come and gone in life and I it's getting better, you know, where I am now and I think there's some good things to come. Um, but yeah, so you know, going back to the kind of progression of those jobs with learning the volume there, becoming more hands on, more creative, uh, more scratch driven. Uh, get into Hyde Park, so I got hired there as a sous chef. So that was the small mom and pop place with everything was scratch and just me and the chef. Like, I was the sous chef by proxy because there was, you know, there wasn't anybody else, nobody else, yeah. Uh, but I was doing everything, you know, I was doing everything a chef would do. So, um, but it really a, a sous chef, a managerial of other people role, uh, that came in Hyde Park when, um, uh, so I got hired on as a sous chef. They were turning their North Side store up in the Crosswoods uh, for a, a year, a couple of years. It was a Metropolitan Seafood Grill, which was... I think they still have one of those up in Cleveland um, in their portfolio as far as concepts go. But um, I guess it wasn't doing great up there or whatever. And they were going to flip it into Ide Park. So they were renovating it. I came on, on the hiring process during the renovation so it was kind of like I got to open the restaurant, but it wasn't like a full blown restaurant open. I mean, it was, there was already a restaurant there. They were just kind of rehabbing some of it and, you know, changing the concept and everything. But I came on as a sous there. Um, and that was my first experience really in a steakhouse. You know, I, I had cooked steaks to temp before, but I've never, anywhere I was, I wasn't cooking more than a one or two or three at a time. And now you're going to go to a place where that's what you do is, is steak, you know, meat. Um, and it's expensive, so it's gotta be right. It's gotta be great. Um, so yeah, so I got to go there, kind of learn that, um, the ins and outs of running a, you know, a hotel style broiler, infrared, you know, gas fired, super hot, crazy hot broiler. Um, not just like an open grill, but you've got to rack the slides in and out and your heat element is from above. Um, and then, you know, so I got to do that. So there I really learned, you know, how to cook steak to temp. Again, how to do volume, but at a high end level um and also doing banquets really for the first time so you know Hyde Park is you know and a lot of restaurants and bigger restaurants you know they a good portion of their business is banquet sales you know so if you've got banquet rooms private space whatever you know you're trying to do 15, 20, 30 tops all the time so working in a restaurant where you had like the regular restaurant but you were also trying to produce food for 30 people all at once off that same line more or less um so it really tried to help figure out how to juxtapose timing, volume, sense of urgency, those kind of things, which I you know, gotten somewhat another restaurant, but when you're doing it for a large group of people at once, um, and if I could backtrack one second, right before Hyde Park, I was for a short stint. I was at, um, uh, a country club and again, another, that's really where my banquet experience kind of came in because country clubs are doing, you know, 300 person weddings, stuff like that all the time, especially a big country club. Um, I had gotten in there because the executive chef there was my uh, one of my instructors in culinary school, and the small independent place with the chef owner had folded after five years, right before the holidays. And I was telling my instructor, I was like, you know, I just lost my job. It's, it's Saturday, it was Thanksgiving. We're going into December. Like, what am I going to do for a job? And got me on at the country club, did a bunch of bake shop work, and then also worked the line, became a supervisor, stuff like that. So really picked up high volume banquets which helped me hide park again doing banquets um then again then i go on to some other smaller places inconsequential um end up at brio uh i had lost my position chef position at a smaller place uh due to the recession got in at brio uh, as a sous. um a buddy of mine was a server there, and he basically just talked me up a lot and got me in the door, and got my resume into the chef's hands, we got an interview with the chef and the the GM right away. Which at the time, if you were trying to get a job at a place like that, realistically, you're supposed to go through corporate. You know, you would answer a job ad, they would weed through you corporately, and then they would once they weeded you out of a pile of resumes, then they would you know hook you up with a store chef or a corporate chef or somebody. Right. So I kind of backdoored it and once they talked to me and saw my resume and listen to me, uh, they're like, okay, well, now now we'll go to corporate and say, Hey, here's this guy's stuff, set him up, set him up with all the requisite uh, follows and interviews and stuff. So I did that, I got in there, and that just took everything to a whole new level from a volume perspective. Um, I was working at Brio at East, and I think they do more now because they fully enclosed their patio. But when I was there uh, in the summer, they did a million dollars in the month of June. Um, so you just just the month of June alone, I think they were doing about nine or ten million a year uh, in revenue. They might be doing more than that now because the patio's fully closed all year round. Pandemic uh, aside, uh, pre-pandemic they were you know doing those kind of numbers. Um, but yeah, I worked with a really strong team there, both line cooks wise because a lot of them have been there since the opening and had already been open for ten or twelve years. So you had a lot of really seasoned. Uh, Hispanic cooks that could just bang out some volume he had a really good uh, uh, chef leader there Uh, his name was Thad Cottrell and he owns the 101 Beer Kitchen so all the 101 Beer Kitchens here in Columbus he's the owner and operator of those so I worked for him when he was a brio before he opened 101 Um, it was funny too because him and I used to we got to know each other used to talk all the time and talk about craft beer and he used to brew a lot he had these ideas for having a restaurant they wanted to brew their own beer and to this day, the the brewing their own beer parts never come true, but he definitely started his own restaurant. They've got three here in Columbus, and they opened one up in Fishers, uh, in Indiana, last year. So, but yeah, working for him, really strong team, good group of people, good management. Uh, the GM was uh, Ian Brown. Ian is the owner of the Whitney House in downtown Worthington, a nice little neighborhood restaurant there. Um, so, you know. You've you've got this family tree, you know, in the restaurant industry. Everybody that you know worked for this guy, that worked for this guy, that worked for that guy. So we're all connected in some way, shape, or another. So it's a lot of great people in Columbus, um, and there's always great people, you know, moving in, you know, with with experience, you know, bigger and maybe better than ours. Um, you know, we're not the biggest city, we're not the most progressive restaurant town.
0: So at that point, at that point, like you've worked for. And I mean, Cameron Mitchell is kind of in its infancy, and it sounds like Hyde Park kind of, you were at the front end of that too. But was there three or four of pretty much like for a while, the largest kind of corporate restaurant environments that we had in Columbus? Do you think, and you mentioned, you know, just because of the volume, do you think that was being in that ecosystem? And you did, you know, some of the smaller stuff and the mom and pop stuff, but you had a pretty good balance where you learned a lot about pacing and getting the food out and getting it out correctly, but also, you had that balance when you went to some other of the small places that you could kind of have a little bit more creativity and control over what you wanted to put out. So was that kind of like the best of both worlds, or did you find one more beneficial than the other?
1: Yeah, it's exactly that. The best of both worlds. Uh, that's kind of what I've always explained it to people as of recently, or if I were if you were an employer and I was, you know, trying to sell myself on on you is that I have the experience of Low volume, hands-on, scratch, creative. But I also have done high volume, upscale, um, turning tables, putting butts in seats, but being high quality. So I've managed to meld both of those worlds, which I think has has just helped me progress to to where I am and gotten me some of the jobs that I've that I've had. Um, yeah, going in you know, Hyde Park. You know, I was there for two and a half years, and then I left there because they were they were becoming more corporate. Uh, they were you know changing some things, doing some in, some practices uh, that I you know wasn't agreeable with as far as scratch made items or not scratch made items, or you know butchering your own fish and things, or being told you know what portion controlled meats you get or you know cuts you got to buy or whatever. Um, it, it was becoming less about the chefs and more about more of a corporate entity you know kind of thing um i ended up at brio just i was lucky to get the job because like i said i lost my job this recession i really thought that i would settle in there and, and i was like okay this is kind of my path up to this point here i am uh i'm just gonna put my head down i'm gonna work my ass off like i always have and wait for a store to open up or something wait for a position to open up and uh so I set about doing that, and it took me the first six months really just to get a handle on the volume because I was the biggest volume at the time that I'd seen. But I picked, you know, very much like my first job at Cap City, like I figured it out and uh, you know became you know pretty instrumental and became a good strong part of the team. And the only thing was at the time that my chef at Easton wasn't going anywhere, and the chef at the Polaris store wasn't going anywhere. So my only option would have been to them opening a store in another city or state somewhere and then moving and opening it up. Which we weren't super crazy about moving. I mean, we don't really have any family here. My family's in Indiana. My wife's parents at that time were based here in Columbus, but they've since retired and moved to Maine. So, you know, we're kind of on an island. It's just, it's us and our kids and our friends. Um, so yeah, it's never the idea always sounds fun and sexy of moving, but the reality of that is we'll move somewhere. I'll be a chef working 60, 70 hours a week and my wife will be home alone with no friends and, you know, and trying to take care of the kids. So.
0: Did you ever get the opportunity? It might have been before they started doing it because Cameron Mitchell might not have been big enough at the time. But when they started expanding to other markets, were you ever? Maybe they didn't have this at the time, but were you ever able to go to some of those other markets and like train or kind of work a little bit? Or was that?
1: It was so early on. Yeah, it was so early on. Cameron Mitchell. That first year, they really only had about three or four restaurants total. Cameron's offices were still in the basement of Cap City. Like I made lunch for Cameron every day as like a. I was 22, you know, I saw him every day, all the time. That was their offices. Then they, when they built the fish market next door, they moved their offices over there. Then they eventually moved them downtown, though, where they are on the Park or where they are now. But um, yeah, so I used to see him all the time. And then, uh, you know, it turns out years later, you know, I'm in Rio and Rio was the, the job that was there and also the, so the connections and then just the work that I was doing that led me to the position at Lindy's. Um, because Lindy's was looking to make a change internally and the, the, the people that were kind of heading that up, kind of some uh, corporate chef guys and they were Lindy's and Brio used to all be the same restaurant family. You know, Lindy's birthed Bravo, which birthed Brio. So the duty family that started Lindy's is also responsible for Brio Bravo.
0: Yeah, I think they, they just sold or somebody just bought like the Brio Bravo thing like not too long ago.
1: Yeah, it was I think it was about a year or two ago. It, it, it sold again. Um, so Sue, the matriarch of Lindy's, her two sons, Rick and Chris, helped run Lindy's in their younger years. They they created Brio Bravo. Eventually Chris got out, took a big break, and then came back with Piata. So Piata Italian Street Grill. He has all those right now and is still growing that. Rick, the other brother, remained in the company until about 2 three years ago when they sold again because um, it, it got taken public and then I think they sold it again yeah so because it was it was floundering uh, you no know, it wasn't doing well conceptually and financially um, but yeah so because of the people who had previously worked in the Brio Bravo organization they were now with Chris and were starting the seeds of piata they were kind of overseeing Lindy's so they wanted to make a change there. Um, kind of a full-scale regime change. So um, they changed the GM. They brought in a guy that had been in the company for a little bit, had left and come back, and had been an assistant. They made him the GM. Uh, his name's Todd Combo, and uh, he's still the GM there now. And uh, then they brought me in as the exec. So they, they told my chef Fad. They said, "Hey, you know, we're we're looking to make a move uh, with somebody on lindy's Fad knew what my desires were, what my culinary desires were, and he he knew that ultimately they weren't. Brio ish you know and obviously neither was his you know he went and started his own restaurant company um, so he kind of put me out there and he said hey you know I think you should talk to Brett about it and so I kind of got the inside track on the the Lindy's uh, job and brought me in did a couple month long process of interviews doing secret tastings in their corporate office at Chris's office and uh, then they hired me as the exec so I came on there as the exec and even though it was less volume than, say, Brio, um, probably half the volume of Brio, but it was white tablecloth, uh, still at a breakneck pace you know, for that style of food. And it was a whole other animal to try to, to, to wrangle. So you know, I got in there and it took me a couple months to get my feet under me and stuff and kind of figure it out. And the first year we were there, uh, myself and then Todd who had just been made the GMs. So basically, we're a brand new team. Taking over the restaurant and running it, and with the rest of the team that's there, and then uh, Sue, who was very, uh, was always still was always very active in the in the daily management of the restaurant. She was always around. Uh, She passed away, I think it's three years ago now. Um, So yeah, my whole tenure there, for the most part, she was always very hands-on, very there day to day, coming for lunch, say hi to all the regulars, look at the books, talk shop, stuff like that. But yeah, so I took over there. They were doing four and a half million in revenue. And then in my nine year run, when I left, they were at like 7.7. So a lot of growth over that time. Um, a lot of growth in banquets, a lot of growth in catering, a lot of growth in brunch, uh, the patio, which always was a hit and very had a lot of notoriety, but even more so now. Um, and and that's due in part to uh, the staff, the management, the food. Um, the guy, one of the one of our assistant managers, uh, he personally does all the gardening, planting, you know, taking care of the outdoor patio and everything. So every year that it's got like bigger and better, or whatever, you know, that's that's kind of been his baby. So uh, his name's Grant. So you know, kudos to him and the job that he's done with all that and making it what it is today. But yeah, he, you know the. All the volume and the, the finer details and the banquets, all that stuff really led me to the point where I could get to Lindy's kind of put all that stuff together. So the expectation was was that it was very detail oriented. It was upscale. It was white tablecloth. It was very chef driven. Um, you know, th- there's a, a very large chunk of the menu that's never going to change there, and that's fine. They're old classics, and they're the things that people love. The people that make people feel good and comfortable. And that's why they go there. But then there's always you know a quarter of the menu that changes seasonally, you know, a few times a year. Was that the space that that quarter was that basically
0: where you had free reign to kind of do whatever you felt fit?
1: Yeah, you know, I could put whatever I wanted out there. You know, it still had to go through a rigorous process of, of tasting and you know everybody signing off on it. But uh, that was definitely the creative outlet. Uh, daily special laws, you know, you always had a creative outlet. You could kind of do car wash, whatever you were doing. you know, you're hitting your numbers and. We're not wasting money or throwing stuff away. Um, also, holiday menus. So every New Year's Eve, we would do a pre fee, and that would be just completely off, you know, out of the box, um, something different. You know, we would include a few favorites, but it really would just be everything amped up a little bit, a little bit nicer, a little more special. Um, and so we would do all these one-off menus for holidays, Mother's Day, Easter, Thanksgiving, stuff like that. Um, and uh, so there's your creative outlet, but obviously, it was still very controlled as far as the overall menu scope was but you know i really i got to do what i want to do and again, again hone my cuisine so to speak and just figure out what it was i really like to do or what i like to cook and try to inflect that and you know into, into the menu and kind of make it mine so to speak Um, Or made it feel like it was
0: mine. So going going back a little bit, when you're talking about the interview process at Brio and then also at Lindy's, how extensive was that? Because you you obviously kind of circumvented probably the traditional hiring process both times with having connections. Yeah, but like you mentioned or alluded to, like there was multiple interviews. So was it is that pretty typical for a corporate kind of restaurant environment, or was did you feel like it was super extensive at any point to the point where you're like, how many more of
1: these I got to (laughs) do? Yeah, I think that Lindy's was very much like that, and I think it was more so that way, and probably more in depth than most places would be, because you're talking about a 40 year old family owned restaurant with a lot of history, a lot of notoriety, and you know, with a lot of skin in the game, and, and they're not going to just throw anybody out there, or or they're very they're aware of maybe some some slip ups or failures they've had in the past where they thought they were high on the right person and turned out not to be the right person. Um, I ended up being there for nine years. And in the 40-year history, I'm the longest running chef I've ever had. You you probably had your handful of like five, six-year type guys. Um, But, uh, you know, the family always treated me really well. Um, I did well financially there. Um, I put a ton of hours into that place. You know, a lot of heart and soul. Um, A lot of... When you work in a place like that, you know, you're very hands-on. You're very... uh, Something breaks, you know, something something needs fixed, something minor. You know, you're always trying to figure it out yourself. You're trying to... The sump pump backed up, you know. Let's pull the sump pump out and see at the bottom of it's clogged with you know pieces of plastic and straws, you know, random things like. So me and my uh, GM Todd became masters of any and everything that needed done in a, in a restaurant aside from fixing equipment. You know, we didn't we didn't do HVAC, you know, or R and M. But if you could fix something minorly or do it yourself or screw it back into the wall or brace it, you know, do whatever. Like so, it was very very involved. You know, and there's a challenge because it's an old building. It's in German Village. You know, so um that, that would present uh, a surprise, you know, on, on the on the weekly, if not the daily, you know, and just adds a whole other layer to the difficulty of the restaurant. But yeah, the the process I think was was definitely more in depth because they wanted to make sure they were getting the right person. That job and that place is not for everybody. You know, it's it's one of those very particular restaurants where some negative people, you know, might say it's like a meat grinder, you know, kind of choose people up, spits people out. But then again, like I was the exec chef for nine years. There's bartenders that have been there for twenty there's banquet people that had been there for eighteen or twenty. Um, so the right people stay for you know whatever particular reasons, and it, it weeds out the the chaff. You know, like it's it's not for everybody. You know, and the restaurant industry isn't for everybody, and you know, people kind of figure that out along the way. But um, it's kind of one of those only the like, strong survive type places.
0: Like you were there for almost a decade. Like, did you just kind of think like that's where you would continuously be, or did you? like we're started kind of getting antsy and like, well, maybe I want to change or, and that kind of led to ghost, Or how did all
1: that kind of materialize? There were definitely some itches along the way. Um, you know, whether it was feeling stagnant or whether it was just feeling just the, the stress and the pressure of, you know, always succeeding, always being the best, trying to stay on top, you know, trying to get whatever accolades, you know, best restaurant, 614, you know, stuff like that. Um, you know, just just trying to keep ourselves at the top and make sure that we're always growing, you know, and not losing ground. Um, so there's definitely times along the way where I was like, you know, maybe it's time for a change, or you know, I, I really need out of this or whatever. And I would fight through that, or some opportunities would present themselves, but they wouldn't be the right opportunity, you know, for whatever reason it wouldn't work out, whether it was money, whether it was position, whether it was happen to move, you know, or something like that. Um, and yeah, the the goal eventually was because was they had Piata going for, at this point, probably about year 6 or 7, I was there. So they got it going pretty much within the first year I was there. And then that was going along and they're growing that. And then there was talk of maybe doing another concept. Chris wanted to do another concept outside of Piata. And the idea was that I would be involved in that. So it would be a way for me to elevate above and beyond Lindy's. You know, maybe I'd go help start this other concept with the Piatas, you know, corporate chef and kind of my direct boss. So we would go do that as a joint venture, and I would kind of learn that side of things. But then maybe I would still have a foot in Lindy's, help oversee my team there. They would elevate everybody, hire somebody else to fill in, Um, and but I would still maybe be responsible for it somehow. Um, So it was a way for me to grow, uh, both in leadership but also in in position. and then get a better, maybe a little better work-life balance and something that wasn't so day-to-day, you know, restaurant driven. And that was kind of the game plan. Um, And it was coming around and it was, you know, there was more talk about it. There was more talk about it, but it wasn't quite happening just yet. And then uh, the ghostwriter position materialized, you know, they, they sought me out. Um, They reached out to me on LinkedIn and started up a conversation and, I thought it sounded kind of wild at first because we're you know we're talking about it and I heard the words kill buck which I had no idea where in the world that was and I'm like okay this sounds kind of hokey or what what is this what is this lady talking about you know and um,
0: LinkedIn's probably also not the place that you're used to getting like contact right, right a restaurant <laughs> like they were like, opening
1: yeah yeah so you know so it's like I've always been the, the school of thought of you never turn down an opportunity to talk you know. Even if I'm happy where I am, if someone wanted to approach me and talk about something, I'm going to listen to them because you never know when the most amazing thing is going to fall out of the sky. You know, it's serendipitously, you know, become what you were looking for. Maybe you didn't know you were looking for it. So, uh, yeah. So they reached out to me and we started a conversation and uh, started to do a little research on them. And they were the owners of a company called Crowworks. Um, Crowworks makes restaurant furniture. So. Uh, you look at 101 Beer Kitchen, High Banks Distillery, Little Eater. Um, they're all over Columbus. But, um, so they make furniture for all these restaurants. like fixtures, tabletops, booths, stools, you name it. Um, well, then I also figured out that they, when they had done the, the furniture for 101, I called up my buddy, Chef Buddy Fad, and said, Hey, what do you know about these people at Crow Works? And he's like, awesome people. They're actually friends of my wife and I known them for a long time. They're awesome people. They've got this great business. Uh, they're big dreamers, but they always seem to make it happen. And so I dig a little further and Crowworks have been around in one or other iteration for 25 years. So definitely got some staying power. I know they're in the community. Well, then I start to find out from talking to them that they're also a major player with Starbucks nationally. Uh, they did the Shake Shack at Easton. And so now they're in good with Shake Shack and they're starting to do some other Shake Shacks going forward nationally. Wow. Uh, They also in the past year or two have gotten in with Wendy's and obviously Wendy's is Ohio based over in Dublin. Uh, But as Wendy's is starting to retrofit a lot of their older stores or build new store freestanding stores, uh, Crow Works is their their supplier um, as far as other furniture and fixtures and stuff. So they're really... A lot of places upgrading, doing a lot more modern stuff, really into the uh, the outdoor, the, the industrial slash wood, you know, that kind of vibe. Um, and they've got a bunch of other uh, national accounts as well, you know, uh, Blaze uh, Pizza, um, uh, Perry's Steakhouse, I think, which is in Texas. So, yeah, they're dealing with people nationally, both large scale and small scale. So, the story is they want to open a restaurant in Johnstown. And I'm like, okay, I mean, I've heard of Johnstown, but I've never been to Johnstown. Uh, I know it's out past New Albany or somewhere. Um, they went to open a restaurant. They had bought um, a PNC Bank had converted it to offices. The adjacent building was a dry cleaner and laundromat with some apartments above it, and that's what they were going to uh, turn into the restaurant. And then they also had bought a couple other properties on the on the block as well. So uh, I got to talk to them, and we start talking, and it's going to be. Uh, a showcase you know for the product that they make obviously already. Um, food wise, you know what they were looking for was a comfortable neighborhood tavern, you know a public house, um, some place where people can meet and hang out and have a great time and it's not super stuffy but it's also you know it's definitely upscale vibe, but it's also very comfortable. it's very relaxing. it's, it's a great atmosphere. Um, they're world travelers, they're very well read, very well fed. Um, they have a great eye for detail um and so and they, and they have the the fortune of having a business where they make stuff for restaurants so they see restaurant stuff all the time um, so i think they really knew a what they wanted to put in a restaurant and then what they wanted to really showcase to, to clients and other people so and the reason they chose johnstown was twofold number one they're a high school sweetheart husband and wife couple that are from a small northwestern ohio town and then um Secondly, their manufacturing and distribution is in Killbuck, Ohio, which is an hour further northeast of of Johnstown. So if you leave Columbus and you head out, either take 62 or you eventually get on 62 out by New Albany, 62 runs into Johnstown. And then if you take it northeast through Johnstown, you'll end up in Kilbuck, which is Amish country, beautiful rolling hills, farmland, um, and lots of furniture and stuff up there. And then they have their... Manufacturing and distribution center there, so everything they make and ship is out of that area. So it's kind of multi-tiered, where they could bring clients into Columbus, especially you know nationally, if someone's traveling to Columbus to meet with them, to see their product in on in person stuff like that. Then you can bring them in, have them in the offices, have a meeting, show them your you know your slides, your catalogs, whatever your pitches. Take them next door, can show them stuff in real time of things they've actually custom made. Um, and, or just have them in for dinner, you know, and, and give them a good time. Um, and then you could, you know, the next day or that same day or whatever, you could head up to Killbuck and see where it's all made and shipped. So it's kind of a, you know, a nice little linear model of, of getting clients in and showing them what you can do. So
0: what was the most appealing, you know, when they're giving you the pitch, what kind of locked you in? Was it just being able to just run the kitchen kind of however you wanted and just being able to finally, like. I don't have to worry about having, you know, half of the menu kind of has to stay the same. Like I can just do whatever I want or what, what kind of sold you on the opportunity?
1: That was definitely some of it. Um, you know, part of it is they really wanted to focus on not necessarily to call it farm to table, but we definitely wanted to support the local, the, the small business person, uh, the, the artisan baker the the cheese maker the, the cattle rancher you know any way that we could find and it just not because it was local it has to be awesome number one i don't care if it's made down the block if it's not good it's not good so you know high quality great ingredients done well done simply and then kind of with the addition of you know we've got the wood fire grill um so a lot of the food is is touched by that and, and the wood fire grill kind of came in late in the game and they They had a little bit of a preliminary design uh, of the kitchen set up when I came on, and you know I kind of looked at it. I don't think this is going to work. This is going to work. Why do we need this giant pizza oven? Are we planning on having pizzas? Like, what's what's the you know? When I think public house or tavern, I don't necessarily think pizza unless that's all you have. So we kind of reworked, and we were kind of talking about things, and I brought up the idea of a wood-fired grill, just like. A standard box style grill that you feed with wood. The fire's underneath, and it's just your regular barbecue style grill. But it's on the line in the kitchen, and that instantly elevated into uh, a Grillworks. Um, that's that's the name of the company, Grillworks. Um,
0: really cool Instagram page that you can follow them. It, it's pretty cool stuff. Yeah, yeah, all yeah. the cranks and everything.
1: Yeah, yeah. So the kind of the story behind that. Ben, the uh, the owner operator. His father created it back in the late 60s, early 70s. It was kind of just making, screwing around and making custom iron, stainless steel grills, making for friends and stuff like that. And it then got a little bit bigger, whatever, maybe a little regional ish, but nobody was, you know, it wasn't a restaurant thing. It was just people buying, people that had money, I think. And then uh, they were big and intricate and, you know, cost a fair amount because of the product and uh, the time that went into them. And then, uh, I think, uh, dad was planning on folding it and kind of walking away from it. And Ben, who I I want to say was maybe in finance or, you know, something, some other very, uh, white collar, um, uh, job industry. Yeah. Industry. Yeah. Sorry. Thank you. Uh, said, Hey, I want to quit doing this and I want to revive the brand. I want to do something with this. And so he kind of took it over and got connected with Dan Barber up in New York and Stone Barnes and, uh, I think Dan was the first one to get one of his custom restaurant grills. And then it just kind of took off from there. And obviously now they're at the point where, like what we bought is more of a, not a custom, it's more of a standard um, style grill, but they do tons of custom work. So you can buy uh, what we have is a 48 inch wide unit, an Exo Pro 2 unit. Um, so you basically got a stainless steel frame with a chain pulley system in the outer posts. Um, And then, uh, there's two grates that go up and down independently of each other, and you can get them closer or farther from your fire, however you want, uh, just by cranking the wheel. Um, and yeah, so you've got those or you've got entire like custom, you know, harps, fireboxes, grills, ovens, things like that. So you look at like, uh, the name just ripped out of my head, but, uh, down in Atlanta, King, King Duke. King Duke in Atlanta, like their whole kitchen line is Grill Works. Um, uh, I would imagine Sean Brock's has got some of their stuff or something similar to it. A lot of those guys have custom stuff um, up and down the East Coast all around. But we, yeah, we were only one in Ohio to get one at the time. Um, there was one prior to that at Rook's uh, Barbecue that was on campus. But I think Rook's was only open for like a year or two or something and then it closed. So... That they had a grill works there as well. So at that time, I think that would have been the only grill works in Ohio. Um, and I know the Hilton's planning on putting one in their whole annex, then the new hotel they're building down, downtown. I want to say Rock Mill down at their Lancaster property, I think, might have one down there or something similar. Yeah, I don't um, know. I haven't been down there, but I've heard that. Um, and then uh, when uh, Jonathan Sawyer opened up Seesaw downtown, they had a, more of a custom hearth, but. Yeah. So there's not a lot of places in Columbus, you know, cooking over like a live hearth fire. You you have to go to Chicago or uh, Detroit or a bigger city or something to see that. Um, I think Prime and Proper does it up in Detroit, Um, Chicago, Royster, and a lot of other restaurants like that that are kind of in the Alinea portfolio. I've actually been there. Um, Yeah. So to see that live fire cooking, you get to see, you know, an open kitchen of people cooking over it. So that was... That was a big piece of it. The fact that we were going to have uh, some wood fire cooking, uh, the restaurant, um, just the overall vibe of it, the style of food. You know, they said, you know, we want a very, you know, comfortable upscale tavern, meeting house, public house sort of vibe. Um, and I just kind of took it from there. And they said, just, you know, just do your thing, kind of. And so those were the things that were all. Um, drawing me to it you know and it was definitely uh, a step away from what i'd been doing for the past nine years it was definitely going to be a change in volume which was going to be a little bit of a relief you know because after you've done nine thanksgiving of feeding 800 nine hundred thousand people nine mother's days nine you know whatever it's like those kind of things and those kind of volumes like you learn a lot from it but after a while it's you're not really go- you're not, I would say you're going through the motions, but it's just it's it's hard to continue to replicate that and to do it and want to do it well. Um, so I think it was just really the perfect time of getting ready for something new. And Lindy's and the, and the ownership talking about there being an opportunity, but it really wasn't presenting itself quick enough because it had been talked about for a few years. And then this opportunity came on and it was the opportunity to open something brand new, which I'd never done. So from the ground up. From a building that was sticks, you know, building the kitchen out, choosing equipment, layout, um, creating a a menu from from scratch, you know, doing everything uh, with myself and my sous chef that I hired on, getting that opportunity, cooking uh, local awesome products, not not necessarily the cheapest or the one that was easiest to get a hold of or whatever, but it was about. That it was really about what was best and what was going to make the most kick ass plate, what was going to be the most wow factor, what was going to be the most interesting thing. So, all of those things rolled into one. And, you know, financially, it had to be something too, or, you know, I, I wasn't coming from a place that I was making what I was making after nine years and I wasn't going to take a huge step back either. So, it really just all of those facets have kind of lined up and decided to make the move what opens
0: October, November, I think 2019 couple months later, November COVID happens, you guys did a bunch of I think to go and and take out to but then you were able to finally kind of reopen. Was there any like abnormal challenges that you encountered with COVID? Or is it all kind of the standard, you know, obviously, trying to get trying to figure out to go food and how that travels and get people to Still, you know, get to go food and because they can't do dine in, like all those kind of usual things that I think everybody's heard about. Was there anything that was like unique to you guys with being kind of like a newer restaurant too?
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't know if there's anything unique. I mean, that everybody obviously had a similar yet unique experience, but having been the fact that we had just opened and we opened strong, um, you know, we had people at our soft opening and they were like, this is your soft opening. This is so smooth this is so good you know like we're waiting for you to fall on your face here like we understand it's your soft opening like and i don't say that to you know be you know boastful but it just i went about creating a very strong team in the back of the house because being in johnstown you know the labor pool is not going to be super great from a culinary standpoint there and it's not there's no other restaurants really there it's not a ton of people there so I was able to get people that have worked with me in my, in my previous life, whether at Brio, and they followed me to Lindy's, and then they followed me from Lindy's to there. Um, some people left Lindy's to follow me. Some people were working both jobs. Uh, some people were people I knew, and they had left Lindy's at one point, but then they knew I ended up at this new place, and they wanted to check it out as as about, and see what it was about. They wanted to reconnect with me. So I opened up with a very seasoned team of, of cooks. Um, and I only had one person out of probably six that were not a previous hire, a previous employee of mine. Um, and that person had a very, you know, a pretty good resume and good experience from up in Cleveland That had moved down here to the Newark area. Um, so he had a lot to offer too. So we had a really strong team opening up and we were ready for anything that came at us because um, we had all done high volume, upscale, white tablecloth restaurants. So... Volume wise, it was definitely a step back. And even if you're getting killed, you're getting killed for 40 minutes or whatever, not three or four hours. (laughs) So yeah. So and and for those people too, it was an opportunity to do something new, do something different, uh, really see more of my personality in the food, and not be so kind of handcuffed, so to speak. Um, Not a bad way, but it just you know was more free. Um, When when I took the job, I basically came to them and. I had here's my lunch menu, here's my dinner menu, here's my brunch menu, and here's a ninety-page book, book, basically like inspiration. So when I decided to take the job, I was like going on vacation, and so like I kind of put in my notice, "Hey, I'm going on vacation." Lindy's tried to do their darnest to talk me out of it, um, but at the same time, I was you know making my mind up to move forward, and I was on vacation on on restaurant websites, on Instagram, looking at cookbooks and. Anything that I saw a picture of that I loved a picture of, and I'm like, that's what I would put on my menu. You know, I would snap a picture of it or whatever. And, uh, I put together this booklet, you know, and it, the pictures pretty much matched the food that was on the, on the menus that I, so I gave them some mock menus and they looked at the three mock menus and they're like, it all sounds awesome. And that's what we did. We just opened up like that. Um, but yeah, so we, we opened up and, you know, the menu was very, uh, thoughtful and I think unique and, but without being, too uh strange or you know there wasn't like' we're not gonna put octopus on the menu in Johnstown you know like that's I understand my audience you know so we we, we pushed the envelope where we could and, and tried to create some interesting things there also there's lots of comfort there's lots of familiarity um, and that's how you're gonna suck people in and that's how you're gonna get them to trust you and then you know maybe eventually try some other things so then you know the uh, the shutdown happens and we were close we, just, we went into scramble mode we shut down I think for a day and a half um, we had to lay all the hourly people off. Uh, and we just kept me, my sous chef and our two front of the house managers and chopped the menu down, redeveloped some items. Yeah. Trying to look at what travels well, you know, we can't do this dish. It's going to be garbage 30 minutes. Like that's the other thing is too, is we're in Johnstown. So unless you're getting it locally in Johnstown or from like New Albany. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. We're looking for people to come from New Albany, Gahanna, Newark, Granville, even Columbus, which, you know, we're, we're getting a ton of now, people are finding us and the word's getting out. But you don't want to drive that far for to go food unless you're going to eat it in your car out back. Um, you definitely don't want to drive 30 minutes. Like I live 30 minutes away. So I rarely bring to go food home because it's not going to be any good by the time I get home. Um, if anything, I'm just bringing home some raw ingredients, you know, and I'll cook it up when I get home or something. But even then, it's pretty rare. We'll just get carry out locally. So yeah, so you go into shutdown mode, we revamp the menu, we chop it down, we get rid of everybody. And we're like, okay, what can the two of us handle? So it was dinner only, five nights a week from like four to eight, and mostly sandwich driven with a handful of entrees. And I'm like, okay, my sous chef, like, hey, you're going to work over there and you're going to do the sandwiches and the fries and I'll do the entrees and I'll help you and we'll just figure it out. And of course, a ton of the the out food was sandwich driven. So, you know, he's getting humbled every night. We're both getting humbled every night. And it's just the two of us. And there's no and I know a lot of people went through this, you know, there's no controlling um the flood of like online orders or anything like that. Like you've now gone from a restaurant where you had reservations and you had a rough idea of what you were gonna do every night and how much food you needed, to now being complete and unknown and you're completely at the mercy of who Phones in an order, or who gets on the internet and wants your stuff. So, you know, there were some some rough nights. Either there where you're, you're running out of product, or we, luckily we had the product. But it's just we're getting pummeled, and just the two of us, you know, years getting drilled for a few hours, and then you eventually just have to like figure out, okay, we've got to set some parameters. We've got to turn the to-go food machine off. You know, we got to not take orders between this time and this time, or put it on pause. We're so buried. Put it on pause. We get caught up. You can turn it back on again. Um, but trying to figure out that system, we did that for 12 weeks. Um, so from beginning of March all the way to the beginning of June when the restaurant reopened. The the last few weeks, we were able to bring back a few hourlies, try to ease up our load a little bit, my, my sous chef and I, and then also allow me to kind of get the menu ready again to like reopen, you know, planning, menu writing, recipe development, stuff like that. So got ready. We reopened June. Um, brought back a lot of the original stuff, but there's definitely stuff that didn't make it back either from a labor standpoint, because nobody knew what was going to happen when you reopen in June. So it's like, we're still trying to be lean with personnel. We're trying to be lean with product and things like that. So, you know, some things that were came in an extreme cost to us, you know, we didn't bring back. We had a, a really awesome bone in short rib that we did, uh, the opening menu and people loved and raved about, um, uh-huh. And it was usually around two pounds raw. So you're talking you know, be a beef short rib that's, you know, like yay big. And uh we we're getting those from RL Valley Ranch uh, down in Athens, and that's the guy who does our ground beef um still. Um but we'd get those short ribs in, we would cook them slow and low, um, and then we would finish it over the wood fire. Um, so you get this nice little crispy char on the outside, but that's super soft, tender, pull apart, fatty short rib and i think we were selling it for 33 or something like that but it cost me 20 to 22 bucks just in the short rib so i'm putting 22 20 bucks i'm putting $22 on the plate before i put the, the steak sauce and the veggie and the whatever on it and then i'm selling it for 32 33 like we're giving it away you know and at the beginning it wasn't such a big deal cuz it was about wowing people it was about showing johnstown what we could do and what we were about Putting really cool, interesting things on the plate, getting some things out that would get us some notoriety, and also, you know, when you're opening a restaurant, you know, it's like hurry up and get open, I hope we're busy, and then we'll f- kind of figure out the costs later. You know, like you've got a budget and everything, but like in the beginning, it's just like, can we make this work? Let's just go, and then once you start looking at the budget, and you're like, okay, maybe food costs is a little higher than we want it to be. You know, you start trying to find those ways, and and realistically, like. Okay, we could keep that shorter on the menu, but we'd have to sell it for forty-eight or fifty dollars just to make a fifty percent food cost, you know. So, and it's like, are people going to come there and spend forty-eight or fifty dollars? So, those kind of things, you know, had to be sacrificed. Uh, some things, maybe were a little more labor intensive, had to be sacrificed, and you know, make some amends on the menu. And I, I wouldn't say I would never say that we dumped down the menu, but when we came back, I think the menu was just smarter. It was more it was built for speed with less people because we were trying to watch our labor and keep that down. And this is, you know, a brand new restaurant who just went through 12 weeks of carryout only. And, you know, between January and June made money like one, one month out of the year. You know, if, if that. So, and we're brand new. We're trying to make sure that we're here for next year. Um, so yeah, so we just got smarter about the menu uh, and really honed in on more of what maybe Johnstown and the surrounding area, what people were looking for. Whether it's carry out or on the menu. And I think some of those things that were born on the carry out menu definitely carried over to the regular menu because people want it. We sell a ton of it. So why deny it? So, in like a perfect world, I guess, you know, I
0: mean, maybe even now is how often do you think you'll like ideally turn over your menu? Cause I mean, you're, you're sourcing seasonal locally as much as you can too. But when do you know like it's time? At least in your mind, yeah. Let's let's change a bunch of this around. You know, if you're doing all the dying in that you were originally planning on doing, and
1: have gotten back to now, yeah, we and we have. We're, we're very fortunate for that. It's it's come back strong. Um, so we're we're in we're in good shape as far as that goes for the moment. So I hope we stay there. But um, so we're fortunate for that. But yeah, uh, probably. I mean, definitely uh, two times, if as far as like major changes. And then I think you can do a third and a fourth where you're kind of tweaking a couple of things here and there. Because, like, right now, I don't have, and I'm not trying to be super pious or high and mighty, but we don't have any tomatoes in the restaurant right now. Like, why would I have fresh tomatoes to put on the sandwich? Because they're coming from thousands of miles away. They're cardboardy. They've been gassed. They've been, you know, whatever. It's, it's not what a tomato is meant to be. So, it's not what a strawberry is meant to be. I'm not having strawberries right now. So, I want to try to feature those things as much as possible. And it also gives us the opportunity to really feature it locally. So last year when we did open in the fall and it was towards the end of tomato season, but they were still available. And sometimes depending on the weather, the seasons, you know, shift a little bit. So we did a lot of work with knife and fork farms, which is a small independent farmer in Johnstown. Um, they gave us all of our early tomatoes last year. So every, every tomato feature we had, and even when we had a, fish sandwich on the menu and we put a tomato on it There was a local airman tomato you know that's kind of the way we want to do things and i don't feel bad about saying like hey i'm sorry i can't add a tomato to your burger and right we don't have tomatoes You know, we don't want to um i want the food to be as best as it possibly can um and so as more and more farmers and the seasons change in the area you know whether it's knife and fork There's a lot of other smaller ones um, that we're starting to connect with, and then obviously just the local vendors. You know, our cheese curds come from Black Radish Creamery. Uh, We used to get all our bread from Lucky Cat Bakery before Lucky Cat folded in uh, in December, Um, pandemic related, unfortunately. Um, Yeah. So get that. We get our beef from uh, our ground beef from R.L. from Rob Phillips down in R.L. Valley. Uh, Amazing ground beef, delicious. We, that's our number one seller is our smash burger you know so that's never going anywhere
0: i was assuming so because when we were in there i think it was like maybe
1: every other plate yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know it's, we do, we do uh, some grilled onions on one patty the other patty's plain well uh, when you read the menu it says a cheddar ale fondue um so when it comes to your table it looks pretty melty it's a little more liquidy than regular cheese but what it is Um, We do a a cheese sauce, uh, cheese, uh, some water, some uh, beer, and sodium citrate. And sodium citrate allows fats and liquids to emulsify and to hold together under heat. Um, So what you end up with is a cheese sauce that is liquid, virtually liquid cheese um, with no separation, no oil. There's no roux. There's no thickener. There's nothing holding it together. It's just chemically held together. Um, And when it chills, it's like Albedo. Um, so we just kind of like scoop it and put a little ball or a patty on top of the burger and you just hit it with the spatula just a little bit, uh, and just to flatten it and the heat of the burger melts it. So you get like true cheesiness rather than, and you get the same thing with a slice of cheese, but also I was, I wanted to do something unique at the time. It was also being cross-utilized in our mac and cheese we had on the opening menu. So it, it kind of filled both voids and it kept us from having to slice cheese. We don't slice and portion cheese cheese. We had to do that for our burgers. I can't imagine how much cheese would be slicing all the time. Um, or you go the super nostalgic slash cheap route and you just do like American singles. And, and that's fine. Like Some people do that for their burgers around town or whatever um, for that reason. But also, if you're making people pay 14, 15, 16 bucks for a burger, like I think there could be some really quality ingredients there, cheese included. Um, so, whether it's an artisan bun, whether it's really awesome, uh, great local beef, uh, or whether it's uh, a nice aged cheese you know, component on the, on the, and then our, uh, our pickles we get from Crazy Cucumber, which is located in Johnstown. So, again, trying to focus on the local small time, Burberry. They do a lot of uh, festivals and, and, uh, farmer's markets.
0: They were at the new Albany's farmer's market,
1: which uh, used to be on Thursdays. I'm not sure. At least when we lived out in Albany. So yeah, they're always there. Yeah. We use their, uh, their sweet, spicy bread and butter. I mean, I can make my own pickles, but I think they make a great pickle and it's a chance for our small business to support another small business. So that's you know what we kind of want to do. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so a couple of major tweaks or a couple of major changes seasonally with some seasonal tweaks to allow for freshness and seasonal quality of stuff. You know, it's a
0: it's a really beautiful space if people listening haven't been there. Definitely, obviously, go check it out. Like the food's really good. And this the space is really beautiful with all the decor touches that they did. The only thing that I thought was not even, I wouldn't say odd, it was just the interesting design choice. Do you know how the two like full bar areas came to be? Normally, a restaurant would have one. And I couldn't figure out, was that just because of structural, like they had to they put
1: something there or, or what? It was fully designed to be that way. That was a choice. Um, oh, okay. You know, and I thought it was kind of odd too um, at the time. Um, and the really, I think the, the genesis of it was, you know, you go into a restaurant and Lindy's might be a perfect example. And this isn't a negative at Lindy's at all, but the front room where the bar is loud, boisterous it's a party like if you want to have a quiet date you are not sitting in the front room you go to the back room so you've got like the front room the little smaller middle area where the restrooms are then you've got a long back room the back room's a little quieter and it's got some some alcoves and some partitions and stuff um, so the idea was you know you go into a restaurant or a bar or something in the front room or the one room where the bar is it's one environment and then you go to another section of the restaurant and it's a completely different environment and they really wanted that conviviality that boisterousness, that community, people talking, people hanging out. They wanted that at both, both sections of the restaurant. The building was cut into into 2 spaces. So the wall that's between them, they've got 2 cutouts on either end of the room. The wall structurally was there, but the idea to have 2 bars was purposeful. Um, and then they've got the open kitchen on the, on the one side. So the, the front room, you got the main, what we call main bar, and some booths, and a uh, semi-private dining area. And then the back side, um, you've got the open kitchen window and then the other bar. Um, but yeah, they wanted to just kind of carry over that that feel or that vibe. So they wanted the whole space to be able to feel the same way.
0: Were you actually able to ever use some of the... I know I think there was an article I read that you planned on using some of the offcuts or scrap wood from the furniture for the wood fire. Were you able to do that? Because I know you guys get your wood from...
1: I think it's Almondinger dinger Sawmill. Yes. Yeah. Almondinger is a sawmill just down the road on the edge of town, of Johnstown. Uh, so we get our firework, firewood delivered from them. And then uh, as far as those offcuts, yeah, they deliver us a, a pallet full. You know, it comes in a big cardboard box, kind of like what watermelons come in, in the grocery store. You know, when you go in and there's a big pallet of watermelons on the floor, it's a big wooden box. And it's all like two, three, six inch nubs of, of oak planks. Um, that are kiln dry, do a nice, I think they're like 11% moisture content or something, which is about half the, the moisture content of firewood typically. Um, so it burns really hot and fast. So it's great for starting fires or maintaining fires. If you're starting to lose a little heat and throwing a big log on it, it's going to kind of suffocate it or slow it down. You can throw a couple little chunks on there and keep it rolling. Um, but yeah, they deliver them to us as needed. We've got... You went in our parking lot right now. There's 2 giant ones right out back up against the wall. So anybody wanted any little spare scrap wood to whittle with or whatever, they can just roll up there and grab it. Uh, but yeah, it's yeah, that was definitely a purpose-driven uh, sort of thing. And another way of kind of entered in... What's uh, the word I'm looking for? Vertically, that's what I was trying to say. Vertically integrated, um, you know, where it's, hey, we're a restaurant, we're cooking with wood. We're also using wood that's been a sub sub production of our, our sister business or parent business of, of the product that they make. So it's not like that stuff's going to waste, you know, and I'm sure they produce more than, than maybe we can use. And may, and I'm not for certain. I don't know if, if any of the overflow of that, you know, gets turned into something else. Maybe they chip it down and it, you know, it goes away to a mulcher or someone a bedding or something for farm animals. I think they do that, but I'm not hundred percent. I know all the minger does that with all their off run, you know, they go from a tree to a log to a plank to a board, you know, a lot of their stuff ends up as, as, um, mulch as well as like animal bedding and stuff like that. So trying to come full circle, you know, and it'd be is yeah, we're using wood and yeah, it's, you know, you're cutting down trees to use all that, but it's, it's purposeful and we're trying to use it in any way we can. So,
0: all right. So I got, uh, Eight more questions for you. Ask these to everybody. Sure. Um, first question, who would you say is the biggest influence on your cooking career thus far,
1: looking back on it? That's a good question. I don't I don't know if I could single any one person. I'd say the fir- that first chef owner I worked for, Bob Keen, really let me kind of grow and let me get some wings, you know. Um so I'd say that as far as like professional chefs, I mean, when I first got into it, that was really at the height of like Emeril when he was first on TV. And I don't know. I, I grew up; my mom watched Galloping Gourmet, like Graham Kerr, and stuff like that. So like, I always saw that stuff from a young age. Um, definitely Thomas Keller. You know, in my very early years, that was when the Laundry was first coming out with their book and things like that. So I really learned to cook that way or have that kind of eye artistically. You know, kind of the way they did food. Um, and I've, I've never got a chance to go out there, but that's definitely on my list of, of places to, to be able to go one day. Um, and then, you know, currently, you know, I just, I, I, stay abreast of what's going on. So I'm very aware of like what current chefs are doing, what people are doing at major markets and stuff like that. Andrew Magetti, who was my chef at uh, a of country club and was one of our culinary instructors. Um, I did some culinary competition stuff with him. so. I'd say he was pretty instrumental in, in maintaining that sort of competitive drive in me that kind of carried over from being a jock and being into football and weightlifting and stuff like that. Always being a competitor. Um, and we were joking around the kitchen the other day. I made a comment or something, and one of my guys says, It's not a competition, chef. And uh, the other guy that was standing next to me, both of us looked at each other, and we were, at the same time, we were like, It's always a competition. And, but that's just my personality, you know, and it, it doesn't mean that he was wrong for saying that. Um, but for me, everything's competition. I don't like losing in checkers. I don't like watching my children lose at sports. I don't, I don't, I don't deal with loss. So, um, I want to win. I want to, I want to, I work hard and I want to win. So, um, yeah, I'd I'd say chef Magetti, chef uh, Bob Keene. It's funny when I worked for him back in like 1999, 2000, probably about 2002, that's that range. Um, I think I knew it at the time that he, at one point, he had been a chef at Lindy's as well. And then, you know, a full decade, 15 years later, or whatever, I ended up a chef at Lindy's. So, you know, I, I kind of ended up walking some of those. Serendipitous. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that too at, at Brio, you know, he really helped me kind of understand the volume and the thought process and how to run a place like Brio and how to manage. You know, that place wasn't about the food, it was more about management. You know, it was about making sure that, Places were in their places and people knew what they were doing and they were doing it right, and, you know, and, and how to, how to deal with
0: people. What's the, uh, one kitchen item, one kitchen item. That's not a knife, uh, that you can't live without.
1: Uh, I'd say spoons. I know that comes up a lot. And obviously your podcast is spoon mop. Uh, I've got a couple of spoons, uh, that I use, uh, when I'm cooking right now, I don't get to use them quite as much on the station, but I'm off. But when we first opened the restaurant, um, uh, you know, I had my two spoons and you know, my towels and my tongs and stuff in front of me, but I was using those spoons, to plate sauces to make, you know, swirls and swooshes and things like that. Um, so that's probably the most. And then, um, for, uh, Christmas, I bought my sous chef. Um, so there's, a, you probably have heard of the, um, great, great Coon spoons. That's really kind of one of the, the metal spoons that's out there that chefs really like to use. he's kind of the guy who started that whole movement in his kitchens. And there's a, uh, a knife company that also does some woodwork, but mostly they're a custom knife company called Boot Hill Kitchen. And uh, they're out of Tennessee, I believe. Um, so they make custom knives out of like uh, reclaimed uh, sawmill blades and random things like that. Um, and either somebody that works for them or, or the guy that owns it or something, they, somebody else who does some woodworking and they make wooden spoons too. So for Christmas, I bought a set. They do a wooden version of the Grey Coon spoon. So I bought one for myself, one for my, my chef buddy, and one for my sous chef that works with for me now. So as they all know, my chef buddy got more spoons than I got. So it's definitely spoons for him. Um, so I wanted to add his collection with the wooden gray spoon. Um, and I got one for at home for making risottos and stuff like that. You, know, where you want something a little softer. You want to beat it up with a metal uh, thing. But uh, yeah, I'd say spoons.
0: Uh What's the one Columbus restaurant that you'd recommend that isn't your own? So like, you know, the example I always give is uh, somebody who's flying through Columbus, got stuck here, you know, um, on a layover, reached out to you say, and you're like, yeah, we're not open tonight, but you should go here.
1: My wife and I have a few standbys. Uh, our favorite like any day, everyday place is North Star Cafe because they're just, they're so damn consistent. And it's really good and it's good quality. You know, the, the ingredients are high quality. Um, so for just like a breakfast or a lunch, you know, I definitely recommend that. They never miss the mark. I've never had a bad meal and we go once a month, if not more. Um
0: the service there too is like super impeccable. Like
1: yeah. We we yeah.
0: we have been there, you know, a couple times and you're just having a conversation. You're not really paying attention and maybe like ten minutes go by and like your your food hasn't come out and they're like, Oh, we're so sorry. You know, and we're like and they drop off it's a couple like, of freebie. Yeah, free and you're like, it's cards. no big deal. Like, you know, yeah. it's ten minutes. And it was yeah. like, but whatever system that they have, you know, it went into the red and it was like, This is yeah, that's always it- they do what they do and they, they do
1: it well. Um, they've really got that that whole that thing is locked down. Yeah. The, the the repetition, the quality, uh the consistency, it's it's the same no matter what. It's good. Um, great breakfast, great lunch. I don't go there for dinner much, but you know, their dinner food, I mean it's the same. It's 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 on the same level but just we we like to go there for like a late late breakfast or something on my day off we actually went there today uh before we <laughs> before we had of with podcast um and then um i feel really stupid i'm drawing a blank but uh josh's place not veritas but the casual italian place in delaware spec yes yeah, spec. uh they're awesome uh we managed to get there once uh i really want to get there again but having a Monday and Tuesdays off is when they're not open. You know, they're, they're closed on those days as well. So.
0: Well, I have some, some good news for you that will be moving downtown. So that'll be right across the street from. And, you know, I'd heard that and I wasn't sure from Veritas. Yep. So it'll,
1: it'll be easier for you to get to. Yeah. That'd be awesome. Uh, Cause getting a Friday, Saturday off right now is uh, not, not an easy thing to do. Um, especially at a brand new restaurant. Um, And we have such a small team, you know. So, unless you're on vacation, we really try not to, like, hey, I'm just going to take Saturday off just because I want it, you know. Not that kind of freedom in a brand new place and with a small team, but uh, we're growing. I just hired a couple of new guys, actually. So, we're kind of expanding a little bit. So, Um, but yeah, uh, Spec, we had an awesome meal there. I kind of go back and forth uh, with their GM on uh, Instagram. She's always commenting on our stuff, and she's been out for brunch a few times. Uh, she was out a couple of weeks ago, actually came over and said, Hey, um, we had a great, Abby. Yeah. Abby, yeah. We had a great dinner when we were there. So I- I'm keyed into their Instagram. They put a beautiful food and from what I ate when we were there, everything was awesome. So I would definitely say that. And that's kind of out of the way. You know, it's in the Delaware, but, but uh, it was worth the, the trip. Just like I'd say, Coast Riders worth the trip. Um, you know, and from like a, from a CMR perspective, I mean, if you're, if you want something that is a little more upscale, but you also know, it's going to be really solid and good. Um, I think the ocean club or, you know, Mitchell's ocean prime at at Easton, we always have an awesome meal there. It's, it's always good. It's it's very pricey, but if you want to throw down some coin and, you know, get some good wine and a good steak or good seafood dish, um, my wife and I always love it. And we actually went there not too long ago. Um, i've had some good meals at the guild house uh and i've had friends and people have had mixed reviews or whatever but every time i've eaten there i thought it was really good same yeah um i have not had the pleasure of getting to veritas i very much would like to check out that i don't know josh personally um i know he had a little bit of a history with lindy's at one point before he was ever even in kitchens um my gm todd uh knows him and actually todd had been to veritas but i i have not and again like being a chef, like you just, you don't go out to eat a whole lot, you know, you're, you're working when they're working. So it's, yeah. Well, yeah. And also when you have kids, like your days are like just the wife and I don't always make priority date night a priority. You know, every once in a while, we're like, okay, we got to go out. Like it's, it's time, but it, it's not a regular thing. So I don't get out as much as I'd like or as we'd like. Um, but uh, yeah, I would love to check out Veritas, but definitely I, I would purposefully check out Stack. Uh, if you're looking for something downtown, I'd say Guildhouse or the Pearl. We've always had good experiences at the Pearl. Uh, they do a good job there. And then, uh, yeah, if you're out at Easton or whatever, if you're out by the airport, then I'd, if you want a nice meal, I'd, I'd duck into the Ocean Club there.
0: Uh, what's the kind of bucket list travel destination restaurant that uh, you haven't been to that you, that you desperately want to go to?
1: Definitely like to hit the laundry. It, it seems cliche, but it's just it's been around for so long and it's been such a part of my career. Of following it, of wanting to cook like it, of reading and owning the book, of seeing, uh, Chef Keller's, you know, empire grow over time and all the stuff that they've done and all the chefs they've cranked out, and the people that have worked for him that are now doing their own things. And you know, those people that I follow on Instagram and elsewhere, um, just to, to have that experience. Um, I've been to San Fran. I got to go to San Fran a, a couple of years ago and got to go to the fancy food, um, Conference they have out there. They have it twice a year. In the summer, it's in New York, and in the winter, it's in San Fran. So I got to go to some really cool places there. I got to eat at State Bird Provisions, some other really high end and/or you know one two Michelin star places. Uh, been to Chicago. Been to Royster. I, w- I think I would love to go to Alinea. Uh, I'm not sure at the end of the day if I could justify the money being spent on the meal, but. But I think I would, I would, I want to have the experience. I could say that I had it to so just see what, see what it is. Um, and then lastly, uh, probably I've, I've never been in New York city. So that's one thing I'd love to go to a La LaBerna Dan? So go, go eat it at Chef Repairs and see what he does with seafood. I'm the old school crusty guy, you know, that's, I'm 45. I'm still working hard in kitchens. I started in kitchens right out of college. I got married right out of college. We waited five years to have kids, but in that five-year period, I was in a culinary school. My wife got out of college, went right into nursing school. So we just have never really had an opportunity to travel the way that people travel nowadays. I mean, it's nothing for people in their twenties and thirties now to just uh, oh, yeah, I went to Oregon last week, and you know, then we went to Spain this summer, and you know, people get to eat around and there's and I know the world's changed and the internet and everything else, so people are things are more accessible, and and people are making things like that more of a priority. Whereas I've, I'm that grinder, I'm that old school guy that just puts his head down and works and probably to the detriment of, of you know, experiences and time off and things like that. Um, so yeah, I just haven't got to travel as much. So the places I have been St. Brand and Chicago, I mean, those are things that have happened in the last, you know, five to eight years of my career. But for the very beginning of my career, I really just never traveled.
0: What's the uh, craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working? I mean, I've had Ansel system go off, you know, people getting accidentally stabbing themselves with knives, a whole bunch of different stuff. Uh,
1: one time I saw like, country club, I saw a kid trying to core a head of radicchio, and he cut his tendon in his thumb. Um, uh, I personally set off the Ansel system at Ghost Rider, uh, setting the starting the fire one day. It got too hot too fast, and apparently that's a no-no because um, there's it's a newfangled captive air, you know, high-powered hood, and it has heat sensors in it, so it'll sense the level of of not just the total amount of heat, but the amount of heat rise in a short amount of time. It mimics like oh shit, there's a big fire starting or a fire that's about to get bigger. I I just started the fire one day, kind of like I always did, except and we'll use some cardboard here and there for kindling from you know from delivery boxes and things like that, just to try to get it going. And and I think I used a a box of like either chicken or seafood to come in. I know there's corrugated like waxy kind of cardboard, and that stuff went up like that. And I had I think I just had a little too much of that plus the wood that I had, and when it went, it went. And there was no danger. It wasn't like you know up at the top of the filters. It wasn't anything weird. It just I guess it got it so hot so fast it set it off. And this was at three o'clock on a Friday in the uh, in the fall when we had opened. Um, so we had to we had to shut it down for the night. I had to get uh get the uh fire suppression company out. I had to get Johnstown PD to come over and look at it. Everybody reset all the alarms and kind of recertify it. We were able to get back open the next day, but we missed a Friday night service because of that. Um, we also had a construction dumpster catch fire the first week or two. We were open there right outside the the restaurant, like right behind it. Um, we're all kind of closing down, shut down. And somebody notices through like the back door, they see like this glow or whatever. And we go running out there and there's a full length construction dumpster ablaze. And we immediately, everybody runs and we grab every fire extinguisher we can get. People were grabbing buckets and trying to fill them up with water. But like there was no put in this thing. I mean, you it, it required the fire department to come over and hose it down. Um, so that's pretty interesting. Um, not real sure how it got started. They figure out... Well, we think... We think... I mean, it could have been like an errant cigarette or somebody that was walking by. because It's in a public area. There's an open public parking lot out back. It could also have been that maybe somebody had put some ash or something in it that wasn't fully cooled down or something like that. Don't really know. Nobody really copped anything um uh, so it's kind of a mystery um uh, also uh i ended up i was in an altercation one time with a guest uh at lindy's um uh, a drunken uh guest that arrived uh, there was two women dining guy shows up and i think it's either it's one girl's brother but the other one's boyfriend so connected to both of the women okay he's drunk they realize that they're trying to celebrate someone's birthday they're like okay we got to get him out of here we got to and on the way out, the dude's like trying to take swings at the valet or whatever. And some trouble starting. So one of the valets comes running up. This is like at 9 in the evening. I think I was kind of winding down my shift. and I was up in the office getting ready to leave upstairs above the restaurant. They come running up. Chef, chef, we need help with a guy out here. He's like trying to like punch the valet or whatever. All right. So I come down. And I guess because I am like look like a bouncer, I'm going to get pulled into this. So I come down and kind of gauge the situation. So, what's going on? I talk to one of the women. I'm like, you yeah, know, what's going on? And, hey, we're just trying to get out of here. We just need our car. We just really need to go home. We need to get him out of here. He's, he's drunk. I'm like, okay, it's fine. Just, you know, keep him under control. We'll get to your car. No problem. Takes another swing at a valet. Valet, like, yells at me, like, chef, you know, like, you need do anything about this sort of thing? And I, again, I'm not trying to engage the guy. I'm not. And his girlfriend gets in front of him. Is, you know, pleading him to stop, pleading him to stop making a scene, you're going to get arrested, you're ruining my birthday, blah, blah, blah. And she's kind of like, he's leaning into her and pushing and she's putting her hands out, pushing back on him. And then he takes a swing and like hits her with like an open hand in her face. And at this point, I was about five feet away and I just closed in on him and tackled him because I thought he was going to hit her again. I wasn't going to stand there and watch him beat this girl up. Yeah. So, the minute I saw him hit her, I basically dove on the dude and picked him up and sort of like hip tossed him into the ground. And this is on outside on the sidewalk on, at Wendy's on like old, you know, brick pavement. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it ripped, uh, ripped my elbow open. I got like four or five stitches in my elbow. And so when I, I pounded him into the ground and then was just on top of him and held him down the valet is called the cops and i basically just held them on the ground until the cops showed up <laughs> so that's that's between the the ansel system and that that's probably probably a couple of years food or drink guilty pleasure is there anything that like yeah uh love a good cocktail um and i'm very much of the i have sweets too. so anything that like you know margarita bramp something bramble you know something that's got a little bit of sweet you know just enough uh, i mean i'll drink you know, I'll drink straight bourbon if that's what I'm in and feel like at the moment, but go, go-to go is like something that's mildly sweet and goes down easy. Uh, I'm not a big drinker, but like if I'm getting a cocktail to a restaurant, that's what I want. Uh, snack or food-wise, definitely gummy candy. Probably usually gummy bears, but it could be gummy lifesaver. it could be gummy worms, it could be whatever, but I'd say the go-to would be gummy bears. S- specifically, the gold or the white bag? The white bag, well, two schools, uh, not two schools, but two types. The white bag is Albanese, which are very tasty and have a lot of uh, very distinct flavors. Uh, And then Black Forest, which is another really mainstream brand, which are really tasty. The gold bag is Haribo or Haribo, however you pronounce it. I'm a fan. I think they're too chewy, too hard. Um, actually I actually had a chef buddy of mine who liked to put those in a freezer and like chill them and then eat them. And I'm like, they're already too hard and too chewy. And now you're, you want them to be cold. You basically
0: made them into like Jolly Ranchers essentially.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, yeah, definitely gummy bears and either Albanese or black forest.
0: What's uh, your like favorite dish, favorite thing you've ever cooked kind of created kind of that gave you that like aha moment when you're coming up through your career, like, Oh, this is kind of like when everything came together. This is kind of when you knew, yeah, I can do this. I'm on the
1: I'm on the way. Mm, It's a good question. I've got a lot of dishes over the years, and I'm not sure if I could hone in on any one thing. Really, it's it's always been a process of layering and just learning new things, whether it's technique or ingredients. Like over the last few years, you know, as fermentation and things became more prominent, like I haven't done a lot with fermentation. Per se, like doing it myself, but knowing what that does to other flavor profiles, or like maybe it's sneaking a little bit of miso into a dish that nobody would think miso would be in, but like elevating that flavor profile or that level so that it does something different on your palate. Like I know there's something here and I don't know what it is, but I love it, you know, and kind of the the umami aspect. So I don't know if there's really like dishes. I mean, I've definitely created dishes that had staying power that were on the menu forever and ever. and still are in some places, but yeah, I don't, I don't know that I can pick out one really interesting, you know, one specific one.
0: Uh, and then kind of last question, this might not even apply, but is there, you know, a favorite Anthony Bourdain kind of episode moment scene that you kind of remember that stands out to you or possibly were you not really an Anthony Bourdain kind of fan? We've had both sides of the
1: argument. So. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard some of your, your cast and I've heard a couple people and they were like, the one, the one guy, I can remember who it was, but it was not in a board at all. And I was just like, how can you not be? It was Alex out in Denver. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, I was very into, into Chef um, early on in my career. Uh, the latter half, when he was doing um, No Reservations, I wasn't as uh, active or as into. Like I didn't watch it as much, but when I was a little younger and or had a little more free time or watched a little more TV as far as that went. Um, when his, when his first book came out with, with that, with, no, um, so what was the first, no reservations was the the first one or was it the last one? I'm trying to remember the food network one, a cook's tour, which was like, cook's tour. That's what it was. Cook's tour. Sorry. Cook's tour was the very first one with the book and the food network show. Um, I remember reading that book and also watching that whole series. Um, the, I want to say it was in Thailand with the cobra heart, like they killed the live cobra and had the heart like in a little, like little monkey dish and the blood and stuff. Just was really interesting. Um, also, uh, the time that I think, uh, some tribal people somewhere in Africa, I don't know what country it was, but gotta be like, uh, like the bond of like a warthog or something like that. It was just like eating like, you know, the, the, the lower, the, the outer intestine uh, you know, of a pig or whatever and just like how you can't. No matter what you do, you can't get that shit taste out of it. Um, but he humbly you know, ate it anyway. Then he knew he was probably being made fun of. Um, I would say probably those are a couple of the ones that stick out the most. Um, yeah, I didn't see as much of as No Reservations as time went on or as, as his career went on. But uh, yeah, I've, I have Kitchen Confidential. I've read it a number of times. Um, Cook's Tour. Uh, Raw. I've read Raw. I have them all on my, my bookshelf over here, actually. Um, but yeah, definitely, uh, an influence on my life, uh, culinary wise. And yeah, it, it was rough, you know, the culinary world losing him. That, that was a tough time for all of us.
0: Where, uh, where can people find you? Social media, website, plug all that stuff.
1: Yeah. Uh, our website is, uh, ghostwriter, www.ghostwriterph.com. And that's writer as in W-R-I-T-E-R. A lot of people, when you tell them, you know, "Hey, where do you work? What restaurant are you?" I you say Ghostwriter, and they think the Marvel, the character with the flaming flaming skull that drives a motor- motorcycle around. Um, they don't hear the T. Uh, so Ghostwriter, dot um, com. Uh, that's our website. Uh, then you can also find me on Instagram. Uh, my, our, we have a Ghostwriter account, and then my personal account is Chef Daddy B A D D Y times four X four. So pretty unoriginal but i'm a chef i'm a father i have four kids so chef daddy times four so
0: <laughs> and you guys are open like five days a week right dine-in takeout
1: yeah five days a week uh wednesday through sunday Closed monday tuesday we do lunch uh brunch service so lunch during the week brunch on the weekends uh 11 to 2 Then we do shut down for a couple hours and kind of regroup and flip our stations and reset everything for dinner. Finish up our prep and get ready for the dinner specials. Uh, We reopen at four, so we're uh, four to nine uh, during the week and on uh, Friday, Saturday, four to ten.
0: Well, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, I know we kind of ran over a little bit on on the time, but um, definitely great episode. Ghostwriter is an awesome place, even though you know, even if you live downtown and it's you know maybe a little. You look at the map and you are like, oh, I don't want it. It's definitely worth the drive. I mean, the, the salmon, yeah, it's the salmon that that, like we had that was just on point, uh, phenomenal. So definitely be trying the burger the next time around. But um, yeah, anytime you know, you guys change over the menu or you got something new to plug, hit me up. You know, open invitation to coming back on the podcast whenever need be, or and uh, yeah. you know, appreciate the time and. And we'll see you soon, I'm sure.
1: Likewise, man. I, I appreciate the uh, the extra boost. I'm sure it'll you know help us a little bit and get some more people our way. It, it's been all word of mouth. You know, We haven't done any advertising at all. It's pre-pandemic, through the pandemic. Now we're hopefully getting on the other side of it a little bit. Um, Sunday night, it, it looked like Friday in there at 5 o'clock. It was, it was crazy. You know? So we're going to put a patio up this spring. So nice. if you're looking for a patio at Ghostwriter, that, that's going to be something awesome. If, if you've seen the inside of the restaurant you know the owners don't do anything without doing it well so the yeah patio for sure will be something to see. so so yeah be looking forward to that yeah and I'll, I'll be in touch
0: cool well thanks right. and uh thanks, have, Rick. have a good week we'll see you soon yep same Thanks again to Chef Brett Fife for coming on the podcast. Uh, we kind of ran over time a little bit. It's always better when we do that. And, and he's, a, he's a bit of a talker, which always makes for a better episode, too. So, really appreciate him coming on. And uh, like I said, you can check out all the stuff for Ghostwriter Public House Instagram. You know, he's on there. They're open pretty much every day for, for dine in. They do brunch on Sundays. I think Wednesday through Sunday is their hours, but. If you haven't been out there, make sure to get out there and make sure to follow along with them and follow along all of Spoon Mob stuff, you know, Instagram, make sure you're subscribed and following our page. Check out the website, different stuff kind of going up all the time, different podcasts coming out with, so make sure you get a chance to listen to all those. Just did the Columbus Restaurant Week stuff, so there's, you know, seven different restaurant reviews out there um, for you to check out. too as well, so appreciate everybody listening and we'll talk to you guys next week.